Hi, I'm Jennifer Z, and welcome to the Jennifer Z Plant-Based and Happy Podcast. Here's what you can expect from listening to Jennifer Z Plant-Based and Happy. My true passion is all about helping educate you, the listener, on food, fitness, and wellness. I educate through my own story and experiences on a multitude of topics, including inflammatory conditions, women's health, plant-based nutrition, fitness, and mindfulness. It's designed to teach you how you can become your most powerful self every single day. From interviews with today's top health, fitness, wellness, and spiritual experts, this podcast is a fun and happy atmosphere. So sit back and enjoy some of the amazing interviews that I have with experts and people who have completely transformed their lives through plant-based nutrition, fitness, and wellness. And if you love this podcast and would love to see it grow with even more incredible episodes, you now have the opportunity to support the Jennifer Z podcast by visiting jenniferz.com forward slash podcast. That's J-E-N-N-I-F-E-R-Z-E-E.com forward slash P-O-D-C-A-S-T. This helps me amp up the podcast finding more incredible guests while increasing the number of episodes being published. Thank you so much for listening and supporting the Jennifer Z community. Today on the Jennifer Z Plant-Based and Happy Podcast, I have Dr. Dean Ornish. Dr. Ornish is the founder and president of the nonprofit Preventative Medicine Research Institute. He's a clinical professor of medicine at the University of California, San Francisco, and the author of six books, all of which are national bestsellers. He has received numerous honors, including the Outstanding Young Alumnus Award from the University of Texas, Austin and the National Public Health Hero Award from the University of California, Berkeley. Dr. Ornish was recognized as a Time 100 Innovator by Life Magazine. As one of the 50 most influential members of his generation by People Magazine. And by Forbes Magazine as one of the world's seven most powerful teachers. And I'm super excited to have Dr. Ornish on the podcast today because we are diving deep. We are talking about the biggest killer in North America and the best ways to prevent and reverse this disease. We are also going into detail about Dr. Ornish's new book, Undo It, how simple lifestyle changes can reverse most chronic diseases. Without further ado, let's get started. Hi, Dr. Dean Ornish. Thank you so much for coming on the Jennifer Z Plant-Based and Happy Podcast. Well, Jennifer, thanks for having me on your show. I'm really thrilled to be here. Amazing. So let's jump right in. Let's talk about heart disease because it's the biggest killer in North America. And there are so many ways that we can prevent and reverse it. Can we talk about these ways in which we can prevent heart disease before we have to get to that point of surgery or actually after when we're trying to reverse it. Absolutely. Well, 40 years ago, I began doing a series of studies that were able to prove for the first time that heart disease can actually be reversed by making comprehensive changes in lifestyle. And of course, if we can reverse it, then we can prevent it even easier. 
And the, the program is outlined in my new book. It's called Undo It. Uh, and I called it Undo It because my favorite key on the computer has always been the undo. Wouldn't it be nice if we had something like that in our lives? And it turns out now we do. And it begins with a quote from Albert Einstein, one of my favorite quotes, which says, if you can't make it simple, you don't understand it well enough. And so in this book, I tried to reduce the 40 years of experience that we have showing what a powerful difference these same lifestyle changes can make and not only reversing heart disease, but so many other chronic conditions. Eat well, move more, stress And the more diseases we study and the more underlying mechanisms we look at, the more reasons we have to show why these simple changes are so powerful and how quickly people can get better. So we started, as you say, with heart disease. We found these same lifestyle changes could often reverse high blood pressure, high cholesterol, obesity, type two diabetes. You know, when most people, you know, half of Americans today are diabetic or pre-diabetic. And yet when, when a doctor puts you on a medication to lower your blood sugar or your blood pressure or your blood cholesterol level, and they say, the patient says, the doctor usually says forever. Uh, and when I lecture, I often show a cartoon of doctors busily mopping up the floor around the sink that's overflowing. It's like, how long do I have to mop up the floor? Like, well, forever. Well, why don't we just turn off the faucet? And the faucet, to a much larger degree than we had once realized, are the lifestyle choices that we make each day that we've been talking about. And what we're learning, I think our unique contribution has been in a series of randomized controlled trials published in the leading peer-reviewed medical journals, is to use these very high-tech, expensive, state-of-the-art scientific measures to prove how powerful these very simple and low-tech and low-cost interventions can be. So we found we could, as we mentioned, heart disease, diabetes, high blood pressure, high cholesterol. And by the way, of course, if you are taking medications, don't make any of these changes without consulting with your doctor first, just to make sure you don't get into trouble. Uh, we also found these same lifestyle changes could slow, stop, and even reverse the progression of men with early-stage prostate cancer, and by extension, many women with early-stage breast cancer. We found that when you change your lifestyle, it changes your genes. You know, an article, a research study with Craig Venter, who was the first to decode the human genome, that these same lifestyle changes could change over 500 genes in just three months. Wow. Healthy, turning off the genes it causes to get sick. We found with Dr. Elizabeth Blackburn, who got the Nobel Prize for discovering telomeres, which are the ends of our chromosomes that regulate how long we live, they control aging, that we could lengthen telomeres for the first time, which is in a sense when the Lancet, which we published uh, our paper in, sent out a press release to announce it, they called it your level. And we're now doing the first, we just began a few weeks ago, the first randomized trial to see if these same lifestyle changes can reverse early stage Alzheimer's disease. And by the way, if anyone's watching this and you live in the San Francisco Bay Area, go to our website, ornish.com, and it has a link to our Alzheimer's study. It's all done for free to the patients who, uh, who enroll in it. And so, you know, one of the, when I was trained as a doctor, like all doctors, diseases are all different from each other. Heart disease is different than diabetes, it's different than Alzheimer's, it's different than prostate cancer and so on. But the radical new theory that I'm putting forth in, in my new book, which I wrote with co-author with my wife, Anne, is that these are really the same disease in different disguises, manifesting in different ways, because they all share the same underlying biological mechanisms like chronic, chronic uh, uh, inflammation, uh, oxidative stress, changes in the microbiome, in the telomeres and gene expression and so on, that in turn are directly influenced by what we eat, how we respond to stress, how much exercise we get, and how much love and support we have. 
And so the diet is a whole foods, plant-based vegan diet, fruit, grains, legumes, soy products with no animal products, as close as possible to how they come in nature. Walking or some kind of aerobic exercise, a little strength training and stretching, various meditation and yoga-based techniques to manage stress, and what we call psychosocial support, which is really love and intimacy. More stress, less, love more, boom, that's it. So we really reduce it down to its essence. Right, and how, how does the typical Western diet play into heart disease? Well, you know, the Western diet is really one of the major causes of heart disease, and not only heart disease, but all of these chronic diseases. I mean, if you look at cultures like in Colin Campbell's China study, 50, 60 years ago, they had almost no heart disease, diabetes, prostate cancer, et cetera. Uh, but when they start to eat like us and live like us, they start to die like us. And now more people are dying in Asia and pretty much in every country in the world from heart disease and diabetes than AIDS, TB, and malaria combined. And it's diverting a lot of precious resources from things that really do require drugs like AIDS, TB, and malaria to things that can be often prevented and even reversed by simply changing diet and lifestyle. And so, you know, uh, it's, it's, it's the saturated fat, it's the cholesterol, but it's, it's a diet that's high in refined carbs and sugar and white flour and so on. But it's also the animal protein itself, and particularly from red meat. And studies are showing that the animal protein increases chronic inflammation, oxidative stress, all the kinds of mechanisms that we've been talking about. And to get past this whole fat versus carbs debate, um, many studies are showing that, for example, if you eat a diet that's high in animal protein, you have a 75% increased risk of premature death from pretty much all causes, and a 400 to 500% increased risk from heart disease, diabetes, prostate burn and the other chronic diseases that we've been talking about. So it's not just an insignificant thing, it's a major cause of why we're getting sick in this country. And we spent $3.6 trillion last year in the United States alone on chronic diseases, treating them what we call healthcare, which is really mostly sick care. And we can often prevent or even reverse these. We could free up literally trillions of dollars to make better healthcare available to more people at lower costs and unlike most things we do as doctors, the only side effects here are, are good ones. Exactly. But I find, too, that even the threat of dying, it still doesn't seem to sway some people from a diet full of the processed foods, the refined sugars, the red meat. And I think that the underlying issue lies in addictions to certain foods. And I think that if we can break through the addiction, we can help the individual start to make those dietary changes. I mean, some people don't even realize how much refined sugars, for example, they're consuming in a day. And I think that just by teaching them how to read food labels, for example, knowing all the different names for sugar, for refined sugar, that can help too, just to get the ball rolling. But when we're talking about food addiction specifically, how do you tackle that? Well, it's a really important question because... What we've learned in the 40 years of doing these studies is that fear is not a sustainable motivator. You know, you're saying, we, you know, fear of dying, for example, because we all know we're going to die. It's just a question of when. The mortality rate is still 100%. It's one per person, but it's not something we think about most of the time because it's just, we know it's going to happen. We don't want to think about it. I mean, if someone's had a heart attack or a trip to the emergency room, they'll do pretty much anything their doctor says for about a month or so, and then they sustain. And we're seeing that in the, in the political world in the world now, that fear is not a sustainable motivator, politically or personally. 
But what is sustainable is joy and pleasure and love and meaning. And, you know, the real epidemic isn't just heart disease or diabetes or cancer, it's loneliness and depression with the breakdown of the social networks that used to give people a sense of love and connection and community. I mean, 50 years ago, most people had a, an extended family they saw regularly. They had a neighborhood with two or three generations of people that grew up together. They had a job that felt secure that they'd been at for 10 years or more where they really got to know their, their colleagues. They had a church or synagogue or club that they belonged to. And many people today don't have any of those. And being on a social network like Facebook is really not a real authentic intimacy because people aren't really talking about, I mean, when you grow up in a family with two or three generations of people, they know you. They don't just know your Facebook profile or your bio sketch. They know where you messed up and they know your demons and your dark side. And that time you got arrested or you dropped out of school or broke that window. And you know that they know and they know that you know that they know. And there's just something primal about being fully seen, you know, the way that uh, James Cameron and Avatar, you know, I see you, you know, which is really an African proverb. I see you warts and all, and I'm still there for you. And there's something really a primal. In fact, one of the studies that I quote in my new book, in the Undo It book, shows that people, the more time people spend on Facebook, the more depressed they are, you know, because it looks like everybody has this perfect life but you, because people only don't post their dark side and demons and so on. So in our support groups, we encourage people to let down their emotional defenses and talk openly and authentically about what's really going on in their lives without fear that someone's gonna reject them or judge them or criticize them or give them glib advice or whatever, just to kind of be present for them, which is really such an unmet need in our culture. And because of that, doing these studies, I'd say, I'd say, Jennifer, like, why do you smoke? Why do you overeat? Why do you drink too much? Why, why do you eat so much fat and sugar and, and, and animal protein? Why do you play so many video games? You know, these behaviors seem so maladaptive to me. And they'd say, you don't get it. You don't have a clue, Dean. These behaviors aren't maladaptive. They're very adaptive. They, they help us deal with our pain, our depression, our loneliness. They're addictive because they help people deal with their pain. I've had patients say things like, I've got 20 friends in this pack of cigarettes and they're always there for me and nobody else is. You're gonna take away my 20 friends? What are you gonna give me? You know, or they'll say food fills that void that I feel in my life or that hole in my heart, you know, or I had a well-known food writer say fat coats my nerves and numbs the pain, you know, or, or opioids, we have a big epidemic, numb the pain or too much alcohol or too many, you know, video games or working all the time is a more socially acceptable way of distracting yourself. And my program is really all about, let's treat the cause of the problem. You know, instead of just mopping up the floor around the sink, let's turn off the faucet, let's treat the cause. And so giving people information is important, but it's not usually sufficient. I mean, if it were, nobody would smoke. It's not like people don't know it's bad for them. It's on every pack of cigarettes. Um, and with Google, you can look, search a million articles in a fraction of a second. So information is important, but it's not usually sufficient. We have to work at a deeper level beyond the information or the behavior, saying, what can we do to help you deal with your loneliness and depression that isn't centered around food or other kinds of addictions? And when we find we work at that level, for example, we present the meditation and yoga, not as a simple way of managing stress, but as a way of quieting down your mind and body to experience more of an inner sense of peace and joy and well-being, which is really our natural state until we disturb it. And so often our whole culture, and especially the advertising industry, teaches us that we get our health, we get our peace, we get our well-being, our sense of love from outside ourselves. Just buy more of this or get more of that and then you'll do it. And then what people experience is that that's just not true, that 
until you get it, you feel bad. If someone else gets it and you don't, then you feel really bad. And even if you get it, it's really seductive because for a moment it looks like it really worked. Ah, I feel great. But it doesn't last. It's, it's almost inevitably followed by either now what, it's never enough, uh, or so what, big deal. It doesn't really provide that lasting sense of meaning. So I've had patients say things to me like, I make sure I've got a dozen projects going at the same time so I can immediately shift my attention away from that letdown to, well, maybe this will do it. But what the you know, ancient swamis and rabbis and priests and monks and nuns and all these spiritual teachers didn't use these techniques just to manage or lower their blood pressure. I mean, you can do all that, but they really are powerful tools for transforming our lives. And what I mean by that is they can quiet down our mind and body to experience more of an inner sense of peace and joy and well-being and to realize that that's our natural state. It's not something we have to get. We all have that already. But not being mindful of that, we end up running after all these things, if only I could get more money, more power, more sex, more beauty, more accomplishment, whatever, then I'd be happy. As a, and then perhaps the supreme irony, running after all these things, thinking they're gonna bring us, keep us disturbing what we already have if we just stop doing that. And then when, that's where the undue title of the book comes from because my spiritual teacher for 40 years or more was a ecumenical teacher named Swami Satchidananda. And people say, what are you, a Hindu? And say, no, I'm an undo. You know? <laughs> because these techniques simply help us to experience that. And the irony and the paradox is that once you become more aware that that's really our natural state is to be happy and usually healthy and peaceful, then you can go out in the world and often accomplish even more. But the intention behind it is very different. It's not like, oh, I got to get all this. I mean, I can love myself and all that. And then the stresses go way up. It's more like, well, I've already got all that. How can I just enjoy my life? How can I be of service to people? How can I make a difference in the world? And then you can do that without the anxiety and the stress, which often just get in the way. And so paradoxically, you can often even accomplish more without getting stressed and without getting sick in the process. Exactly. And I have very similar beliefs where it, it is all encompassing. I believe in plant-based food and fitness and mindfulness. And my journey to the plant-based lifestyle was I was diagnosed with endometriosis and rather than taking synthetic hormones and uh, pain meds to mask my symptoms, I decided to go plant-based, eat an anti-inflammatory diet to reduce the inflammation. But that also led me to changing my exercise regime and it also led me to mindfulness. And I think that if I didn't have those three pieces in my life, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing right now. Um, it, it definitely takes more than one component, I believe. Yeah, and the paradox is people think, well, you know, it's hard enough to change my diet. I can't do this and exercise and meditate and have more love and support and spend more time with my friends and family. But the paradox is it's actually easier when you do them all at the same time. Because first of all, you feel so much better so quickly. It redefines and reframes the reason for making lifestyle changes from fear of dying, which is not sustainable, to joy and pleasure and love and meeting and feeling good, which really are. And one of the points I make in my, in my new book is that these biological mechanisms are so dynamic, when you make big changes, you generally feel so much better so quickly, it reframes the reason for making it. So if you have heart disease, for example, for someone who can't walk across the street without getting severe chest pain or make love with their, their partner or play with their kids or go back to work without getting severe angina or chest pain, and within a few days or a few weeks, they can do all of those things. And they say, well, okay, I like eating junk food, but not that much because what I gain is so much more than what I give up. Yeah. And it's not about living longer. It's about feeling better. And there's a great scene in a movie that uh, I, I cite in my new book, uh, Undo It, 
from James Cameron's and Luis Ayoyos' film called Game Changers, which would come out in a few months. And James uh, became a vegan oh, eight or nine years ago. He and his wife, Susie, uh, you know, he's the guy who produced, uh, you know, directed all these legendary films, you know, Terminator and Avatar and Titanic and so on. And he went on a vegan diet initially because he realized that more global warming is caused by livestock consumption than all forms of transportation combined. And that it wasn't enough to drive a smaller car or have fluorescent light bulbs or whatever. This is where the real action is. So he did. And he had so much energy and felt so good. He's actually making avatars two, three, and four at the same time right now. But he made a film with Louis called Game Changers, which is, you know, the biggest myth about eating a vegan diet, as you well know, is that you're going to not get enough protein and you're going to be kind of a wimp. And so he has all these elite athletes, you know, really superb athletes, you know, mixed martial artists, national champions, heavyweight boxers, NFL football players, people who became Olympic medalists, you know, when they, when they went on a plant-based diet, uh, bodybuilders, even people like Arnold Schwarzenegger, and, and just elevated their game by doing that. But there's one, and I was one of the medical experts in this film, and there's a great scene that, um, of these three uh, elite athletes in their mid-20s, and they gave them a meat-based meal, just one meal, and it was organic grass-fed beef or organic chicken, you know, high-quality meat, and then they measured using this device the frequency and duration of, of erections that they had at night when they slept, because guys get erections when they sleep, it's a normal function. Then the next day they gave them a single plant-based meal and did the same thing. And after the plant-based meal, they had 300 to 500% more frequent erections and 10 to 15% harder erections compared to after the meat-based meal. Now, apparently the film crew went vegan after shooting this scene because it made the point very clearly that this isn't something you do just to prevent something bad from happening years down the road. That what you, yeah, like when I have, you know, I don't have to take Viagra, you know, I don't have to, I can, I can do things that make a difference. But again, it's not just your sexual organs get but your brain gets more blood, you think more clearly, you have more energy, you can actually grow some energy bigger in just a few weeks. You know, your skin gets more blood, so you don't age as quickly. Your uh, heart gets more blood, you can reverse heart disease. It's a systemic approach. And so that's why we've learned that what really enables people to make sustainable changes is that what you gain is so much more than what you give up and how quickly you can experience that. It is. And, and when somebody says, you know, I, I feel like when they're thinking about making the transition to plant-based food, they say, well, I have to give up all this food I love. And I just say, well, I don't think about it as giving up food I love. I think about it as getting a heck of a lot more than what I've given up in the long run. Yeah. And, and so, also, the thing, go ahead, I'm sorry. So one of, one, of the, one of the great things about your most recent book, Undo It, is you talk about how, you talk about, you give tips on eating out, eating at restaurants. And I feel like, a lot of people, when they think about eating healthier, they think about having to give that up, having to give up their social circumstances, having to give up going to rest at their favorite restaurants. And I had to learn through my own experiences all about how to navigate a restaurant. Um, and, I, and I found when I first started, I was hard pressed to find resources to, how, on how to eat healthy in a restaurant, which is why I love that portion of your book. Thank you. That's my wife, Ann, who, her brilliance, who did that that's, part of it. That's my absolute favorite. So thank her for me, please. Um, it really is, though, asking the right questions, preparing ahead of time, choosing the right places to go. I mean, my in-laws would never have thought of going to a, a vegan restaurant in their life, but we took them to one in California and they loved it. So, oh. you know, you, you also get to introduce more people to, to plant-based living. 
but can you share some of your most important tips on eating out at restaurants and just how to navigate that whole situation? Because I think that that's one of the big fears is people not only fearing the food that they're going to have to give up, but they fear all of those, you know, oh, I won't be able to go out with my friends anymore and stuff like that. Well, I travel a lot. I travel for the last 20 years. I've traveled more than 100,000 miles a year and mostly domestic. So I, I often eat out uh, just because I'm on the road and it's not that hard. You know, I mean, you know, go to any, if you can afford to go to a good quality restaurant and say, look, ask the chef to, you don't, it doesn't have to be like in that scene from when Harry met Sally, you know, where she said, I want this, but, but this on the side. And you know, it's just say, look, I, can you ask the chef to pick make me a vegetable plate? preferably without, you know, a lot of oil and butter and salt or no oil and butter and salt if you're trying to reverse a chronic disease. And um, just have them pick out the, the freshest vegetables and legumes and, uh, the, and fruits even that they, that they think are great. And, uh, you know, lightly steam it or if you're not as concerned about things, you know, lightly saute it. And um, what they'll bring out is usually better than what everyone else is eating. And they'll, they'll look at your food and go, well, gosh, I didn't see that on the menu. Can I, I'll, I'll have what he's having, you know? Um, and you don't have to draw attention to yourself, like you're the, you know, the outsider, you're the misfit, you know, by asking. Just ask the chef to make something, have them pick what they like the best, and then it's, uh, it's, uh, it, it can be, you know, just wonder, delicious and nutritious. And, and you can go out almost anywhere and do that, you know, whether it's a Mexican restaurant, an Italian restaurant. It doesn't have to be a plant-based or vegan restaurant. And sometimes they can do things that are even more creative because I find that the, the, the best people, the best way to make plant-based food tastes good is not necessarily to work with a vegan chef. Some of them are great, but work with a great chef and say, work within these guidelines. And because they understand food so well, they can make it really amazing. Absolutely. And, you know, more to the point of what you were saying about when your plate comes out to the table, everyone else wants what you want. That always happens to me. Haven't you found that to be true too? Absolutely. So you're one of the pioneers of plant-based, the plant-based lifestyle. What, and I'm sure you've seen a lot of changes how did that look back then and how do you feel that it's changed now and i i think just with more plant-based restaurants popping up everywhere everywhere but what does that look like to you today well before it was really strange i mean 40 years ago when i grew up in texas you know uh, eating a plant-based you might as well said you're from uh, you know from mars but now it's not only become easier because there's so many great commercial products out there and in in in, in my new book in our new book uh, we put together two weeks of curated plant-based vegan foods that you know you can get commercially to make it really simple if you don't feel like cooking uh, but also it's become cool to be vegan i think you know you've got people like you know Jay, beyonce gave me a great quote for the book because she's she's essentially eating a plant-based diet she and jay-z um and so many other Carlson and uh, james cameron is a good example and susie and so many other people are eating this way if they're not eating this way 100% of the time, even Tom Brady, who won the Super Bowl, you know, last week, is mostly plant-based. You know, if they're not doing 100%, at least they're moving in that direction. And as they move in that direction, they start to feel better and realize, oh, actually, your palate begins to shift. You actually prefer foods that taste like this. It won't be long before they're, they're all the way there. And so I think whether it's for, and, and, you know, the other thing that people are looking for is a sense of meaning. Like, what can I do as one person about global warming or feeding the hungry, you know, or, you know, these kinds of questions. And it turns out that when people realize, as we talked about earlier, that more global warming is caused by eating livestock than all forms of transportation combined, and that it takes 10 to 14 times more resources to make a, a, a pound of meat-based protein than plant-based protein, that to the degree that you move in that direction, you're freeing up 
resources to feed the hungry. And there's enough food in the world today that no one need go hungry. And I was on the board of directors of the San because I was shocked to learn that even in the Bay Area, which is a very prosperous place, one out of five kids goes to bed hungry every night. That's pitiful. We can do better than that. And we have the resources, just a misallocation of those resources. And then, you know, we're seven or eight billion cattle get slaughtered every year to, to create meat. And they're sentient beings, you know. And um, I, I believe that what goes around comes around, you know, whether you want to call it karma or destiny or, you know, whatever it is. And that, you know, if, look, if you live on a mountaintop and, and, there, and nothing will grow there and all you have is, is, is meat, it's one thing. Or if you end up in a, my teacher used to say, if you end up in a plane crash and all your, you're on a mountaintop and everyone's dead but you and there's nothing to eat, you, you eat them, you know, to survive. But with all these abundance of fruits and vegetables and legumes and alternate sources of protein and, and all the commercial products that make it so easy to eat that way, it imbues those choices with meaning to say, okay, I'm choosing to eat this meal because it's going to be good for me, it's going to be good for other people, and it's going to be good for the planet. Those kinds of uh, choices that are meaningful make them sustainable as well. Exactly. And I feel like, like you were saying, people are noticing what other people are doing, and they're noticing the benefit from them. And it, it also falls on, you know, how our governments sort of talk about food and portray food. I'm not sure if you, you've probably seen the most recent food guide that came out of Canada. Um, I would love to know your thoughts on how do you think that this compares to the United States food guide right now? Well, um, you know, the years uh, I, I um, was on two different, President Clinton appointed me to a White House Advisory Commission, President Obama appointed me to a White House Advisory Commission. I've consulted with the Secretaries of Agriculture over the years to try to get the, uh, when Senator Harkin was a, a senator, to try to get the farm bill changed. Because, I mean, to give you a perfect example, I, back in 1999, I consulted with the CEO of McDonald's and people thought I went and gone over to the dark side, you know? And because they have 43 million customers a day. And I said, look, why don't you have something, like put a really nice salad on the menu for the people who, you know, otherwise you're gonna have the veto vote of the person who doesn't wanna eat that way and they'll go to a different restaurant. And you're going to be like the next big tobacco if you don't have anything that's on there that's healthy. So even if it wasn't for the right reason, they, they, we put this wonderful salad on the menu. And it had like 14 kinds of lettuce and edamame and all these great things. But the problem was that the salad was $5.95 and the burgers $0.99 cents because those burgers subsidized, the meat industry subsidized on the farm bill, and the salad wasn't. And also it doesn't price into it the real cost to society in terms of the ultimate healthcare, health problems that, that the burger is gonna create. And so if you're on a fixed income, and that one of the other reasons I did that is a lot of poor people live in food deserts while all they have is fast food, they don't have grocery stores. So I thought, well, at least if they could go into a McDonald's and get something healthy, then that, that might make an incremental difference and even incremental change on 43 million people a day is worth doing. But what I hadn't counted on was that these perverse subsidies that you know you get more calories for your dollar by eating junk food than by eating healthy food. So they ultimately took it off the menu. So I think we really need to go to the cause of the problem. And you know, as Margaret Mead uh, famously once said, never doubt the ability of a group of committed people to change the world. Indeed, that's the only way it ever occurs. That if we can all rise up in this way and make a difference. And you know, the book I wrote is one way of doing that. And so for those who are, I mean, obviously I love to to sell books like any author, but it's more than that. For me, it's a passion. And if you get the book and share it with not only your family and friends, but send copies to your, you know, your senators and your members of Congress and the local food board, you know, and, and the heads of restaurants and say, look, this is what we want. 
And the nice thing about you know, the United States is that it's all about supply and demand. And if enough people raise their voice and enough thought influencers make it cool to eat this way, then we can, it's already happening, but this is a tidal wave that hasn't even begun to crest yet. Absolutely. Final question for you, Dr. Ornish. I wanna talk a little bit about health coverage. And I feel like people tend not to have things done or not to do things due to not being covered by their health coverage. Uh, but companies are covering the Ornish reversal program. Is this something that you expect to see more of leading into the future? Well, not just companies. I, I spent six, I mean, I have a nonprofit 501c3 called the Preventive Medicine Research Institute that I founded back uh, in 1984 when I first moved here from after finishing my medical residency in Boston. And we trained 53 hospitals and clinics throughout the country. And we got bigger changes in lifestyle, better clinical outcomes, bigger cost savings, and better adherence than anyone's ever seen. But a number of the sites closed down because we didn't have the Medicare and insurance reimbursement. And so the painful lesson was that if it's not reimbursable, it's not sustainable. And so I spent 16 years working with the members of people who uh, provide Medicare at CMS. And thank goodness that they created a new benefit category for which we're very grateful to them which enables us for people who have heart disease, they will cover my program in hospitals and clinics and physician groups around the country. And Aetna is covering it in 50 states, Anthem in all 14 states that it covers. Most of the Blue Cross Blue Shield organizations and other insurance companies are paying for it. And if you change reimbursement, it changes medical practice and even medical education. And again, we're getting you know, the same amazing outcomes, but also they're finding that it's saving money in the first year. Highmark Blue Cross Blue Shield found they cut their costs by 50% in the first year and by 400% in the first year by the people and the people that they'd spent the most on, those that they'd spent at least $25,000 on in the previous year. Uh, and a mutual of Omaha found that they saved almost $30,000 per patient in the first year. And since most large companies are self-insured, that now goes directly to their bottom line. And we're having this big debate now about, you know, how can we make better care available to more people? But, you know, we'll come back to the fact that 86% of the $3.6 trillion we spend in this country are for chronic diseases that we can often reverse or prevent by simply changing lifestyle. That frees up a huge amount, trillions of dollars, that we can make better care available to more people at lower cost. And here again, the only side effects are good ones. So I'm really encouraged by the fact that when you change medical reimbursement, you not only change the reimbursement, you change medical practice and ultimately even medical education. So I'm more optimistic than I've been in many years. Amazing. Dr. Dean Ornish, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you. And again, for people who are watching this who have Alzheimer's, uh, if you live in the Bay Area, go to Ornish.com or if you just want to learn more about our work uh, and the sites, we've been partnering with a company called ShareCare. We've been training hospitals and clinics around the country to see if there's one nearby you that Medicare will cover. Uh, and of course, uh, the book is called Undo It. Please, uh, I hope you enjoy it and share it with your friends. Thank you. Absolutely. I'll post all of the links in the show notes as well. Thanks again. It's great. The best way to spread the word about the amazing benefits of healthy living through plant-based food, fitness, and wellness is to share it with your friends and family. You can do this in person or through the various social media platforms out there. I'm so thankful for each and every like, share, and comment. And if you're looking for more food, fitness, and wellness inspos, please visit the JenniferZ.com website. Thank you so much for listening and supporting the Jennifer Z community. And until next time, stay happy, healthy, and plant-based.